Hebrews is a letter to Jewish people. It is a letter that is written, some say, by the Apostle Paul, although the literary criticism wouldn't prove that to be true because it is such a departure from his usual way of writing. None of his phrases that he uses in almost all the letters finds its way into Hebrew. So there's a lot of consternation, a lot of doubt about who wrote this book. And after all, the Apostle Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, not the apostle to the Jews. Uh, James would fit that role very well, and much of what we see in, in James' writing and, and Peter's writing as well uh, deals with Jewish problems. The greatest Jewish problem that there was was accepting Jesus instead of the Mosaic law to get beyond while, how they'd always been raised and always been taught to believe, to accept something that was so revolutionary that it violated everything that they ever knew about God and, and worship and the Levitical system and the tabernacle worship and the tent of meeting. All of their history was contrary to believing that God became a baby in a manger, grew up in a carpenter's shop, and at 30 years old began preaching and saying, I am the son of the living God and I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. For Jewish background and people stooped in Judaism, that was very, very difficult for them to cross over. It was very difficult for them to leave all that they'd ever been taught behind and accept a new and living way brought to them in manner and in ways that they just had no understanding. But the church in Jerusalem was a strong church, but it was a persecuted church. Persecuted because the Jewish people that didn't believe Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was the Messiah, really made life hard for people who did. In fact, Paul's greatest nemesis were the, he called them vagabond Jews. Boy, that's a strange word. If you ever want to slander somebody, just call them a vagabond. That's people who just have no purpose, just roam about with no real order or structure in their lives. And, and Paul called these Jews, they would, they would see where he was going and they'd go to town ahead of him. And they would stir up people against him before he ever got there. In fact, he often talked about that, that conflict that he had. And one of the great scriptures was that thrice they beat my back with rods. I, I was in peril in the deep for a day and a half, adrift on the, on the ocean. In false accusation among false brethren, he said, fastings off, naked and in peril. But he categorized them all under one caption as buffetings. He said, lest I should be prideful and arrogant because God has done so many great things in my life, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh lest I be exalted above measure, lest I get to a place that I become arrogant and haughty and self-centered and self-aggrandizing, there was given to me a buffeter. And then he said, a messenger of Satan that was sent to buffet me. That means buffet means blow after blow after blow. In other words, day after day, week after week, month after month, his perennial enemy was this buffeter that opposed ministry and opposed everything that he did. You know, I believe that God assigns angelic beings to us 
lest we dash our foot against a stone, then it's reasonable also for us to assume that Satan would assign a demonic spirit as well. If God provides an angel, then Satan is always trying to do something that resembles God and an image or something uh, like what God is doing. So it's, it's truthful and it's absolutely plausible for us to say perhaps every one of us have an adversary and have an enemy that is working to our demise. Amen. And that's why the Bible said, try the spirits. Try the spirits. Don't uh, look at the outward facade because a lot of folks look good in here, but if you catch them on Thursday or Tuesday, they may not look so good. And they sound good singing praise and worship, but if you hear them outside these walls in another setting, you might not like what you hear. Each of us has a goal ourselves. We have to work out our own salvation, every one of us. Now, in this book of Hebrews, which is a Jewish letter to a Jewish, Jewish audience, and we've got to get that through our mind first. This is a Jewish audience that he's speaking to. And he talks about the heroes of faith, the 11th chapter. Boy, didn't you enjoy that. Hey, can you, do you remember those four people that we preached about last Sunday? Then the book of Judges, strange names like Barak and Samson and folks that you don't really know a, a whole lot about. But boy, we preached about them last Sunday, didn't we? And he said, time would fail me to tell you about Gideon and about Barak and about, about Samson. And he went through that whole entourage of things. But finally, he closes the chapter by, by saying, but all of these have gone on to heaven, not yet made perfect because they're without us. They don't have us yet. And heaven won't be heaven until heaven has us. And these people that have gone to heaven, they're, they're just part. They can't be whole. They can't be perfect until they've got us because we're yet to come. Boy, isn't that great to know that we're going to make up that great host in heaven and that that host is not complete yet till we get there. And then he starts the next chapter by saying, therefore. Therefore, since heaven won't be heaven till I get there. Therefore, since God has a heaven to go to. Therefore, since God is committed to getting you to the end of the race, Therefore, seeing then as we are compassed about with such a great host of witnesses surrounding us. In fact, it's as if we were in a stadium and we were on the field and the stands were filled with those who have gone before. We're out there in the struggle. We're in the race. We're out there in the wrestling match. We're out there in the boxing match. And it has a connotation of the Olympic Games. It's as if we're still in the struggle and the stands are filled with people who have died and gone on and they're spectators. They're watching us. Well, the aisle ought to be full of folks just shouting your shoe heels off to know that your loved ones are aware of what's going on here. 
that people who have gone on to their reward are now sitting in the stands cheering you on. Oh, you don't hear it, but while I'm preaching, Ken Goodwin is somewhere saying, preach it, pastor, preach it. You don't, you don't see them and you don't hear them, but somewhere in heaven, there's somebody saying, y'all come on and worship, come on, praise the Lord, that are cheering us on. Wow. Boy, that's good to know. If you don't get anything else out of church today, that's worth the ticket to know that people are, are in heaven now, but they're not complete because we're not there yet. And it says, every one of them surrounding us, let us then lay aside every weight. The New American Standard says every encumbrance. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And when you find a definite article in the Greek, it means one, and it means a unique sin. In other words, it has to do with the original sin, the initial sin that happened in the garden. Let us lay aside that human condition. Seeing then as God has a heaven, seeing then as God has a population in heaven that's cheering us on, that spectators let us lay aside every encumbrance that would hinder us from being successful, that would hinder us from winning in this race. Now, this race is not a beat somebody. It's not about getting ahead of somebody or being greater than or bigger than or faster than. The competition is not with individuals. It's a race of endurance. And the prize is given to the people who finish. Someone else may be faster. Somebody else may get more style points than you do. Someone may have a, a, a prettier uniform than you've got. Someone else may have, have great strides with long legs and they just look like they're gliding along and yours may short and choppy like mine, you know, just doing your best to keep up. But it's not about speed and it's not about appearance. It's about the one fact is that you finish. And everyone that finishes gets the prize. It's not about beating somebody. It's about making it to the end. It's about enduring to the end. It's going the, all the way. It's making the distance. And if you get to the tape, sometimes I feel myself leaning toward the tape. Sometimes when I'm, you know how runners, sprinters especially, when they get to the, to, the, to the finish line, they'll reach out and stretch. You know, somehow I just feel like stretching this morning toward the tape. Praise God. Hey, I may go home today. I don't know. I, I, I may go this afternoon or I may go tonight. Might be before I can get back to Wednesday night. I might, I might just be at the end of my race and I may get my prize and just go on. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, if I could have my desire, I would rather. Are you kidding me? It's kind of like the pastor said one time, he said, everybody wants to go to heaven, raise your hand, shout hallelujah. 
And everybody, hallelujah. And a little boy on the front row just stood there and stared at him. And he said, well, son, you don't want to go to heaven? He said, no. He said, well, what's the matter? I thought everybody wanted to go to heaven sometime. He said, oh, I thought you was getting up a trip now. Someday, sometime, not now. Not now. That would probably be all of our response. But Paul said, right now. If I could have my way, he said, right now, I would rather depart. For me to depart is gain for myself. But for me to live is Christ. And it's to your benefit, he said to those around him. It's to your benefit that I keep on living. But he said, but if I could have my, how do we say it in Alabama? Druthers. If I could just have my druthers, he said, I would just rather go ahead and depart and go on. Amen. Hey, what an attitude of faith that is. Seeing that we've got all these things going for us, let us lay aside the weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance, run with perseverance, run with determination, with endurance, the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes. Your King James probably says, looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. One writer says, the builder and the architect. <laughs> he's not just the one who drew the plan. He's the one that built the, the building of faith, the architect and the builder, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy... Somebody say joy. joy. We just sang something about joy to the world, didn't we? That Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. No wonder the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That when you're running and he says, be strengthened, he's talking about the joy. The joy of the Lord is the strengthening, endurance-giving element that helps People be what God wants them to be and run the race. If you show me a Christian that has no joy, I'll show you a person that's not winning the race. Because God's intention for us is that we have joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And the joy, the Bible said Jesus endured the cross because he had joy. Didn't mean that he didn't have some distraction, have some hurtful thing, despising the shame. You mean you can despise the situation that you're in, but still have joy? Do you mean that you can be hurting and suffering because of circumstances, but you can have joy in the middle of your difficulty? Are you kidding me? You mean when I'm supposed to be sad, I can be happy? You mean when, when I'm supposed to be down and depressed and distraught that I actually can be joyous? Though others would be lonely. Though others say I'm sad and lone, but I have somebody with me. I have somebody with me, and he shares my heavy load. I feel his presence near me every day. Don't feel sorry, the writer says, for me, 
because I've got somebody with me. I've got a joy-giving, strength-giving, endurance-giving, faith-giving one with me who will never leave me and will never forsake me. And he is my joy. He is my strength. He is my victory giver. I have somebody with me. His name is Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And then he goes into this dialogue about discipline and about structure and about relationship and families that our our God is our father he says our father we are his children and he is our father we owe an everlasting debt to that that thought that God is a parent that he loves us like children and then he comes out with that great verse that our parents have told us for all these years whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth or he corrects. Now, I, I don't know, the rest of that dialogue says something about that if you don't claim to ever have been corrected by God, then you might ought to check your credentials. You may not be a son. You may not be a daughter because everybody that he loves, he won't leave you in your stupidity. He loves you enough that he won't let you drown in your sorrow. He won't let you just wallow in your predicament. He loves you so much that he'll correct you. He cares enough about you that he doesn't want what's going on to defeat you. He wants you to learn from what's happening, and he actually uses what's happening. It's his tool. I said it's his tool. He calls it refiner's fire. He, he, he calls it something that will make you better, something that will help you. In other words, you see, sin and wrongdoing has a price tag. And wrongdoing, according to God's economy and the way he thinks of things, has to be punished. Got to be. But if you don't do it as a parent, then the prison system will do it later. If you don't correct children and give them the nurture and admonition that they need, then if you won't provide them, then he'll be corrected one day, but you won't like how that happens. Amen. The Bible said, despise not the chastening of the Father. Despise not the correcting that God gives us. You know, and the Bible even says that it's not joyous. Well, boy, that's a true statement. It wasn't too joyous when my mama was using that switch or that fly swatter or whatever she had in her hand. And my mama had this awful habit. She would correct you in public. Now, most of you say, you wait till I get you home, boy. My mama wasn't a wait till I get you home kind of person. If you needed correcting, my mama would do it right there in front of your friends, right there in front of the other folks in the church, right there in front of everybody. Hey, 
my Lord, I've got more whoopings in public. <laughs> my dad did the proof of shooting firecrackers on the church doors at church service. Now, what's so bad about that that you've got to <laughs> correct somebody for shooting firecrackers? My Lord, it's New Year's, ain't it? <laughs> and they wasn't about to call off service just because it was on New Year's. So, my Lord, if you just do what everybody else is doing at New Year's, just shoot a few cherry bombs and a few firecrackers, and whew, next thing you know, you got a little piece of leather wrapped around your posterior. <laughs> and what you, what you really enjoy is going to school on Monday, and your friends are laughing at you. Boy, your daddy wore you out, didn't he? I saw you doing that little dance out there. Heard you hollering, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, it's bad enough that they do it, but you don't have to do it in public. My mom would mash your mouth right in front of anybody. Amen. <laughs> and whatever she had in her hand was what she used to do the discipline with. And God forbid she is bacon biscuits or something because a rolling pin's pretty tough. And my mama had four boys, and Jeff, she'd just jump right in the pile. My mama loved a good scrap. <laughs> Buddy, sure, she would, but she didn't fight fair. She'd take a broom handle and crack you across the shins with it, swat you, buddy. She'd haymaker, buddy. That elbow was tough. She ever caught us fighting, buddy? She just jumped in the fight. And you didn't want to fight anymore when she got in. But you know what? I'm glad now that I was raised like that. I'm glad my mama and my daddy didn't let me grow up to be a hellion. I'm glad my mama and my daddy said it's totally unacceptable for you to act like a fool. There are certain things you've got to do to get along in this world, and you've got to learn them. It ain't all about you. And you know what? Some of them boys I graduated with, Charles, they're in prison right now, and I'm in a pulpit preaching, so you can fuss about correction all you want to. I'm glad I got corrected. Amen. Never understood some of that. I'm doing this because I love you, and this it hurts me more than it hurts you. I, still working on that part of it. But God's nature is love. Everything he does, he does out of his nature. So he loves us enough that he just won't let us be sorry and low down. He won't let us be disrespectful and be obnoxious and mean-spirited. He'll correct us. And the Bible said for us not to despise the chastening of the Lord. And then he gets down there to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. I know it took me a long time to get there. Wherefore? Wherefore what for? Why is that wherefore therefore? Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, it actually says hands, and weak knees. Wow. Well, hands are what? That's symbolic of working. 
He's telling us that we need to be at peace with all people. We need to be at peace with God. He's telling us that we need to, to resolve things in our life. And he says, therefore, strengthen those hands and those feeble arms and those weak knees. Weak knees has to do with what I climb up on these steps with right here. And it has to do with your, your going, your, your activity. You're working with your hands and you're moving about with your knees. And he said, you need to have a plan. Next verse. Make level paths for your feet. Your King James says, make straight paths. In other words, you need to have a plan of action for how you're going to live. You need to have a as for me in my house plan for how you're going to live and how you're going to meet God and how that circle is not going to be broken and how we're all going to be put together in heaven. And when we get there, we'll sing that song. But that song can't be sung until we get there because we still are anticipating, praise God, go into that place. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather, what? Healed. So that the lame, the brokenness that's in me, the thing that I have given into and used as an excuse and have limped around on for all these years so that my inability or my disability and my dysfunction and my brokenness so that my broken, lame self will not be disabled but rather be healed. Your King James says, but let it, let it be healed. You know, that's a big problem because a lot of folks don't want it to be healed. They've spent their whole lifetime with that brokenness and that dysfunction. And nobody's going to come around now and heal it. I've used it for years. Come on now. I just won't let it be healed. I won't turn it loose. I won't let go of it. And how many times do you hear people say, if you were raised like I was, you'd still have these problems I got too. I said to a guy, talked to me, he was an alcoholic, and he was talking about how, how he made such a mess of his life, da-da-da-da. And uh, I said, well, what, what do you think caused all of that? He said, well, my daddy was an alcoholic, and I'm one too. Well, what kind of a lame excuse is that? I wasn't raised right, so my excuse is my daddy was like that. Come on, somebody. You see, you can just... Keep on because you enjoy being the victim. I said you enjoy being the victim. People will, boy, bless your heart. You get more bless your hearts than if you just told them the truth and said, I'm not willing for it to be healed. I just don't want it to be healed. I'm not willing for God to heal that brokenness in my life. I've, I've got used to it. I've, I've put people, I've positioned people around me that 
tolerate my brokenness. I've created a culture of people that think like I think because I'm comfortable around people that's not going to tell me that I needed to change. I'm more comfortable around people that agree with me. I'm more comfortable around people that'll pet me and say, well, I understand. I know exactly how you feel. You see, sometimes we just won't let it be healed. We're not willing to do the things that are necessary for it to be healed. You got to let it go. And that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. I understand. I understand that, that there are, are labeling and there are all kind of things that make a person become bitter and angry. And to get that person, now many of those people's name is on a church roster. They go to church every Sunday. They even pay tithes. They even shout and holler amen when I preach. But inside, inside really, they're bitter. And they've never let it go. They've never turned it loose. They can recount for you the reasons why they're bitter. And they can tell you names and places and dates and time of day. They remember everything about it because it is so deeply entrenched and ingrained that their determination is that I, I can never be happy. I can never, I can never, I cannot do this. I cannot do that. Yeah, I heard the pastor say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but that's not for me. I refuse to be healed. I'm more comfortable being victim. Make level pass for your feet. Want to go to heaven? Want to be part of this group that God is assembling that's not perfect yet until we get there? Want to run this race with patience and get to the end of the race and get to the end and go to the finish line? Want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Want to hear him say, welcome to heaven? Want to see your friends and loved ones and your mama and your daddy and everybody you love? Well, then you've got to make straight paths for your feet and you've got to quit allowing your disability to define you and keep you from your purpose and your destiny and you got to let it be healed. Boy, what a difference life would be like if you just let it be healed. My how things would change in your family if you just let it be healed. My how things would change in your marriage if you just let it be healed. My how things would change in the church if you could just let it be healed. Just let it be healed. And that means get out of the way and stop hindering it. Because God wants to heal it. In fact, no good thing will God withhold from them that love him. In fact, God is a parent. He wants his children to love one another. He wants us to love him. He wants us to love his word. 
He wants us to love his presence. He wants to love church services. He wants to love, love praise and worship. He loves all those times that we do. And he knows that you can't really be all you need to be in those roles until you turn loose of some of that stuff that's made you bitter. The only way to get better is get I out of that word. And that means that you've got to deny yourself. And Jesus said, if any man will come after me, if you want to come after me, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to make a way for you to go to heaven. And if you want to go, if you'll come after me, first thing he said was, do what? Let him deny himself. First you've got to say, hey, stop creating this culture of pessimism and negativism and distrust and let that go. Let that go. Boy, it's quiet in this house, isn't it? Let that go. The devil hates for me to stand here and tell you that. He would rather I would preach you something that would make you happy than to tell you the truth about being free and being what God wants you to be. You're never going to get there until you change. Until you change. Wherefore, lift up those hands, feeble knees, make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame should be turned out of the way. But rather, let it be healed. Listen, everybody got your ears on? Follow peace with all men. That means everybody. Be at peace with faith. Be at peace with Jeff. Be at peace with Adon. Be at peace with Susan. Be at peace with Linda. Be at peace with Gary. What do you say? Follow peace with everybody. In fact, Paul even says in another verse, as much as lieth within you, all the strength you can conjure up, all of the energy you can provide, Strive to be at peace. To be at peace. Now, boy, there's a whole lot in that cow, and I hadn't got time to milk her. What, what kind of church would this church be if everybody strove to be at peace with everybody? Wow. Wow. Well, Brother Jerry, I'm just human. Well, I understand. I know. I am one too. Well, did you hear what so-and-so said about me? Hey, listen. You might as well grow up. Everybody talks about everybody. If you're still under that delusion that they're not talking about you, sorry to wake you up. One guy said the other day, well, said, well, it's a good thing they're talking about me. They're giving somebody else a rest. If you think nobody's talking about you, you better think again. 
They even talk with their eyes and their expression. friend of mine was, he got turned out of the church at, at Dora. Paul knows, I saw his name, Don knows who I'm talking about. Paul got turned out of the church. Bud Jones turned him out of the church, Brother Ford, when he was at Dora. Earl was having a revival over at Northport, and I went over one night, and Bud was preaching. And Bud got up, and he said, God loves everybody. He loves you and he loves me. And Paul was sitting on the front door and said, yeah, I bet he's just crazy about you. <laughs> I bet he's just crazy about you. If you think nobody ever talks about you, think again. They do. And you ever get in this spot right up here, brother, you just better understand. Uh, good or bad, it's, it's out there. If you let those kind of things dwell on your mind and you just stay with that constantly, it'll eat you up. It'll eat you up. Let it be healed. Let it be healed. Follow peace with all men and here's a strange word propped up in this whole discussion. How did holiness get in this? We're talking about talking about people. What's that got to do with holiness? Now, I was raised up to define holiness in a lot different way than probably you do. Lord of mercy, you don't go here, you don't go there, you don't wear this. And some of that's good. Some of that is good. Amen. We've kind of let that pendulum swing the other way a little bit way too far. Amen. It needs to come back, back toward the middle here a little bit. Amen. But it used to be, my God, you can't go to heaven like this. You're going to bust hell wide open. We used, you'd hear sermon titles like, get right or go to hell. Get in the way, get out, get run over. Get in, get out, get run over. Gonna go to hell, gonna burn in hell. And we had these lists of do's and don'ts, had these rules, you know. And we defined holiness as if you keep all these rules and you look as there's certain, still people that believe like that. But what I'm trying to tell you is holiness has more to do about relationships. Relationships. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. Now, I used to think that meant you won't go to heaven. Ah, you did too. It's terrible when you don't see God. Sometimes God can be doing great things. And God can be saving people. And God can be healing people. 
And God can be ministering to people, but it's possible that you never see that because you won't let it be healed. You see, when you won't let it be healed, you get blind and you can't see God. Oh, yeah, you know the words praise and worship. You can do all that. You know all about the right things to say at the right time, the slogans that we all say. But yet when it comes right down to it, you can't appreciate the things that God is doing because you can't let it be healed. Woo. I preached a revival one time and there was two groups of singers that came. And been so long ago, these folks are all dead now, so I can tell you. Millers and Cars was their names. The Millers got up and sang two songs. Two, one, two. Well, when they got singing, they sat down. Well, the Millers got up to sing. Well, when the Millers sang their two songs, somebody said, would y'all please sing my song? That made a total of three. So the cars didn't come back the whole revival because you let the Millers sing one more song than you let them sing. I'm glad we got a, a sound engineer here who lets everybody have a chance. I know sound engineers that if people sing that they don't like, you don't sound so good. Pastor, you are kidding me. In church, that kind of, yes. As long as you've got people that won't be healed, that's what you got. They carry grudges. And if certain people are performing, they clap. Yeah, come on, come on. But if somebody that's not your friend gets up, you. Just won't let it be healed. God wants to heal it, wants to heal you. But you just won't let it be healed. Holiness is God's character. And when he says, be ye holy for I am holy, God is saying, I want you to share in my character. The things that I am, I want you to be. I am truth. I am light. I am love. And he said, I want you to have that in your character. I want you to be like that. But you can't be like that as long as this kind of thing is ruling and dominating you. You see, holiness is more an inward matter than it is an outward matter. And that's where change has to take place. Inwardly instead of outwardly. Oh yeah, we expect you drunkards quit drinking. Amen. Liars quit lying. Thieves quit stealing. Alcoholics pour out your liquor. Don't do like Don's convert did. It said, when this pint's gone, I'm not ever going to drink another. <laughs> when this fifth is gone, I'll never buy another one. Wow. Change has to come in your heart. Change that just comes from here. That's not the right kind of change. That's not what God is looking for. 
make level paths for your feet so that the lame, that disability won't, won't trouble you. 15, he says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Gives us three misses. See to it. Epistopuentes. It means see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Fall short? See to it. Well, what in the world have I got to do with somebody's experience with the Lord and grace? You see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. Well, how in the world can anybody fall short of the grace of God? Not accept the true full benefit of it. God doesn't half save anybody. There are no 50% saved people. There are no, for the most part, I'm saved. Well, pastor, on a rate of one to 10, I'd say I'm about a five. There are no fractions. You were either saved or you're not saved. You're either going or you're not going. You've either got forgiveness of sin or you don't have forgiveness of sin. He said, so that no one falls short of the grace of God. God said, I am the God of all grace. And Brother Ford quoted in his prayer, I am what I am by the grace of God. If God is the God of all grace and he giveth more grace, then is it possible that we just didn't get a full measure. I got just enough grace to make the preacher believe I should be baptized. Got just enough grace that when I pray at night and say, Lord, if I die before I wake up, I'd sure like to be in that number that goes. I got enough grace, but I didn't get the full dose. I fell short of the grace of God. I didn't get it all. Got some, but I just didn't get it all. Wouldn't it be something, boy, I've got you thinking today in the least, haven't I? Wouldn't it be something if we had a revival where everybody got 100%? 100%. Here's what God has. God has for you everything you want. Brother Jerry, pray for me that I'll get more of God. What do you want more? Has a price tag. If you're willing to pay the price, you can get more. He wants you to have all you want. I said he wants you to have all you want. He wants you to have abundance. He he wants you to have life and have it more abundantly. He wants you to have fruit and bear more fruit and much fruit. He's for you. He wants to fill you up. He don't want to be 50%, 60%, five out of 10. He wants you to be so full of grace, full of mercy, full of loving kindness, full of the tender, gracious, loving kindness of our Heavenly Father. He wants it in full measure. Don't fall short of the grace of God. And then he said, see to it that no bitter root A bitter root, a root of bitterness. You know what the bad thing about a bitter root is? 
it's going to produce a bitter plant. And it's going to have bitter branches on it. And eventually there's going to be some bitter fruit on that bitter branch connected to that bitter plant that's got a root that's bitter. Because that root feeds, feeds a plant that's called bitter. That root is necessary for that plant to live. Because if you, like they say, get to the root of it, or you can cut branches off. How many altar services do you reckon we've had where we cut branches? How many altar services do you think we've had that we stripped leaves, broke off branches, even took our mower and mowed down the stalk, but we didn't dig up the root? Don't let a root of bitterness. Why is it so important that we get to the root and get the root of bitterness out? Because if you don't get the root of the bitterness out, it will reproduce and it will keep on until eventually it causes such a disaster, a catastrophic disaster. Well, let's listen to what it says. Why should we get the bitter root out? Because if you don't, it causes trouble. I didn't say it. It's right there on the board. Just read it. If you don't deal with root, then you're always going to have trouble. And listen to what it says. And it defiles many. It's not just a single individual thing. It spreads. It touches other plants. Plants that at one time had love and joy, peace, now has defiled branches because you never got to the root. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? And it defiles many. Next verse. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless. Come on, Connor, and help me quit. Is godless. What do you mean godless? That means someone who disallows the presence and activity of God in their life. You know, one of the most unpleasant things that you'll ever do in church administration as a bishop is that you have to deal with moral failures and you have to deal with sin and someone who is called and anointed of God to minister. That's sad. It's sad because it affects so many. It doesn't just affect this guy, but he's got a wife and he's got children and he's pastoring a church, and he's got a congregation, many people. It's not just a one thing. It's, it's defiling. Why is it defiling? What happened? That word defile means to lose. 
for a person to fall who is of influence, it hurts. When we went through all of that season of PTL and all that season of uh, great personalities, people that were supposed to be really giants in the faith, and to find out that they were sexually immoral. And some of those guys were my friends. What do you do in a situation? What do you advise someone when they get caught in a sexually immoral situation? First thing, you've got to own it. Quit blaming everybody else. Quit pointing your finger at systems and, and personalities and own it and say, I did that. It's me. I did that. Quit trying to pass it off as if there's some ambiguous figure somewhere that's to blame for that. Just step up to the front and just say, I own it. I did that. That's tough because most preachers have egos. Most preachers who are powerful and affluent, they've got reputation. And to stand up and say, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. It takes a lot of courage. I said it takes a lot of courage. It takes courage to change. Anybody hearing this preacher preach? It takes courage to step up and, and say, I am the man and change. Number two, after you take responsibility for it, you submit to the discipline. Why is it so quiet in this house? You submit to the discipline. I know what the discipline is. If I should ever, God forbid, should ever experience that, I know what the penalty is. You can't preach for a year. You silence your ministry for a year. Then you got to go to rehab. And they assign you to another pastor and you go and he mentors you. Come on, somebody. And one of the most powerful preachers in America, I told him to his face. I said, you've got to submit to the discipline before you can have any credibility. Come on, somebody. Before you can get back in that pulpit and preach again. Well, God forgives. I don't have to have man's forgiveness. God forgives. And I said, no, but your word. Your word means something. And when people see integrity in you, that it's not just something you preach, it's something you live by. It's something you, you, you use as a rule for your life. It's not something you tell others about. It's something you yourself subscribe to. Amen. And when a sexually moral person sins, number one, own it. Number two, submit to the discipline. And there are a lot of folks that will never, ever forgive you and never, ever, but God does. I said, but God does. And God does use people that have had bad things happen in their life. Have you ever read 1 Samuel? Have you ever read how bad David sinned? Can you believe that a man that was anointed like David was anointed did what he did? Took another man's wife, committed adultery. She came and told him, I, I'm going to have a baby. He gets her husband to come back on a furlough to the castle and he tells him, go home and spend the night with your wife as if to cover it up. 
Uriah the Hittite didn't go, stayed and slept on the steps that night and didn't go down. And when David found out about it, he said, bring him to me. The next morning they brought Uriah the Hittite before David the king. He said, I thought I told you to go down and stay with your wife last night. He said, you did, but who am I that I should be permitted to go to my home? My brethren are in the field. They're sleeping on the ground. They're dying by the sword. I refuse to be treated with any kind of privilege better than what my brethren are. David was so mad, he wrote his death warrant out. He said, take Uriah, put him in the heat of the battle where valiant men die and retreat from him and leave him. And when he's dead, send me word. He murdered him. David, the sweet singer of Israel, became an adulterer, a killer, a murderer. And do you remember what his prayer was? Oh God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation for my sin is ever before me. God said, here's the discipline. The child is not going to live. Come on, somebody. God said, here's the discipline. Here's the price that that sin's going to pay. The child will not live. David went out, rent his clothes, fell on the ground. Seven days, seven nights, he laid there on the ground. Finally, on the seventh day, the servants came out and began to mumble, and David looked at them, walked and washed his face and fixed his hair, dressed and bathed like a king. They said, why did you do that? He said, I knew that the child was dead. Here's what he said. Here's, here's, here's what you do. You subscribe to the discipline, and then you have faith to get up and go again. He said, I cannot bring that child back to me but my intention is to live in such a manner that I can go to where that child is. I intend to go to heaven. You mean you can go to heaven after acting like he did? God's forgiveness provides for just such people as that. Listen to what it says, though. A godless like Esau. Many of you probably don't know who Esau is. Everybody know him? About 20 of us looks like. Esau was Jacob's brother. Esau was the firstborn. He was the one to get the blessing. He was the one that was in line to be a patriarch. In other words, instead of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it should have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's the way it was supposed to be. But he missed his destiny he missed his blessing because when he came in from the field, he was hungry. And he wanted something to eat. And the Bible said they brought him some pottage. His brother Jacob. You say, he tricked him, brother Jerry. Why, he didn't do it. Tricked him. You got a dollar, Trish? I got a GMC pickup out there. I'll sell it to you for a dollar. He didn't trick him. My God. We may be stupid, but we're not that stupid. He tricked him. No, he didn't. He didn't trick him. My Lord, anybody can figure that out. 
He was just a person that could not control himself. He had no self-control, had, had no way that he could manage his own emotions. There was no way that he could bring himself under subjection, to bring his body under subjection, that he would give right answers and make right choices because when it was offered to him, he was hungry and he said, this is a temporal thing, but he made a permanent decision over a temporal situation. I've told you many times, don't make permanent decisions about temporal situations. Wow. He sold his inheritance. He forfeited his blessing. Turned loose of God's destiny, God's purpose for his life because he was hungry. That's someone who didn't value God's plan for their life. What I'm telling you today is that a change, you can change your phone number, you can change your address, you can change your job, you can change the state you live in, you can change your friends, you can change your neighbors, you can change your car and get another one. You can change your clothes, you can change your shoes, you can change churches. But you'll never be what God wants you to be until you change something. And that's till you change your mind. The Bible said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change has got to happen in your mind. Not 50%, not 60, but 100%. You got to get a made up mind. A made up mind. I've made up my mind. I'm going to heaven. I've made up my mind that no matter what the price is, I'll pay the price. Whatever others do or whatever others say, I've made up my mind. I have purposed in my heart, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to serve Jesus until I die. I'm going to preach this gospel until I die. I've made up my mind. I've made up my mind. I, I've made up my mind. I remember the night I changed my mind. I thought I knew what I wanted. I thought I knew where I was going. I thought I knew I had, had my future planned. I thought I had it all in order and all to look forward to, but I had to change my mind. And I had to say, not my will, but thine be done. It had to happen up here in my mind, not with my lips, but with my mind, with my heart, with the center of my being. I had to decide once and for all, I am going God's way. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to worship him. And I changed my mind. I changed my mind. And that mind to this day is still set. I have a mindset that I'm going to do the will of him that called me to be a soldier. I'm separated not only for God, but I'm separated unto God. To God. And that's what Changing your mind is all about. That's the right kind of change. Stand with me, please. Touch your neighbor and say, don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. A godless person that didn't have a governor. I said he didn't have a governor. It used to be that be on staff at Harvest, you had to have 
chauffeur's license. You had to have CDL license. Don even had CDL license. Drove a truck. I heard him one day say to me, Michael, we were driving down the interstate. He said, oh, no. I said, what's the matter? He said, Schneider. I said, Schneider, what's wrong with them? Slow. Slow. <laughs> if they get in front of you, what does that mean? You slow. You're going to be slow. <laughs> Don, you say that, that truck, it'll pass. If anything on the road will pass us except a Snyder, he said. They all go around us except Snyder. Snyder's the only one that has to fall in behind us. And I said, well, why is that? And Mark, he said, we got a governor. I said, what? He said, we got a governor on ours that won't do but 55, Billy. He said, 55's all it'll do. And I said, well, what we need to do is find out where that governor is and get that thing off of there. Because we need to go faster than 55. Never mind it's the speed limit back in those days. Never mind that. We ain't got time to do 55. Let's get that governor off of this thing. There's one governor for a Christian. And that's a governor that you don't want to take out. That governor is the governor of the Holy Spirit. That governor is the governor that God puts in our heart, puts in our life. And sometimes it doesn't go fast enough for us. Sometimes that governor means I'm, I'm at a slow pace because all that's going on around me. Sometimes that governor, it gets so, so troublesome and so aggravating because I want to go fast, I want this, I want that, and that governor holds me to a standard. Thank you, Lord. One more and I'll go, I promise. That computer that you sit at, it's got something on it, Don, it's called a, I think Debbie told me, a default setting. And you know what? I can go all over the place, but when I shut that sucker down, it'll always go back to default. I can visit all kind of places and get sermons and preach and, and do all kind of things, listen to preaching and listen to singing, and travel all over the place. But when I shut it down, it always goes back to default. And the only way you can change that thing is change the default settings. Hey, I'm getting smart, aren't I? I'm getting better about this stuff. <laughs> you know what? Why you keep making the same mistakes? And you know why you, you can't get, get in the same mess? You know why you keep unequally yoking yourself together with the same thing that's just got different names? They're the same mess every time. They just... Got different names and different color of hair. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching now. You know why you keep marrying that stuff and marrying them guys? Because you never change your default settings. That might be the best part of this sermon you just got. And it's one of them Holy Ghost drop-ins.
You just have to go back to default. Who you really are, that's who you go back to every time, isn't it? Come on, somebody. And if you ever want to change, you got to change that default setting. You got to go back to what you think you have always been. And you say, God, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that. I'm not going to be like I used to be. I'm going to change. And it's not just going to be an outward change. It's going to be an inward change. I'm going to change from the inside out. Wouldn't that be a good thing at the first of the year to make that commitment to God? Commitment to God. You ready to pray? God, in Jesus' name, I come to you as I am. Needy. I realize my dependence upon your grace. And I want all of your grace. I want to be full of the grace of God. I want your spirit to govern my life. And my change will not be just outward, but it will be inward. I want to change from the inside out. And battles that I've fought for many years, I want victory over those things. And I declare my freedom in Jesus' name from every difficulty, every hardship, every hang-up, every relationship. And in Jesus' name, I'm changed and transformed in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, don't just look at it, walk in it. I said, don't just look at it, walk in it. Amen? God bless you and God keep you is my prayer. You be dismissed in Jesus' name and you have a great, 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 great first week of a brand new year.